So I just finished watching a documentary about sponges and I really gotta say, it was absorbing. Hey everyone, this is Devin Boker and you are listening to The Wildlife, a miniseries of The Wildlife actually. It's our first part in an ongoing miniseries, an intermittent miniseries called Phylum. It's the first of many miniseries too. And that's many, like many with an A and then many with an I and an I. Many, many. It sounds the same. Not not like it's super tiny mini, like an extra tiny, but like a lot. Yes. So moving on, what is a phylum? You might remember that from school, kingdom phylum class, order, family, genus, species. There's a lot of ways of remembering that order. Some of them are more appropriate than others. But the point is, is that a phylum is a secondary classification of life. And in this series, we are focusing in on nine phylums of the kingdom Animalia. Once we're done with those nine, we'll move on to some of the more obscure because there is more than nine. It's just some of them are on the tiny side. Not that they're insignificant. They're just tiny. Lots of tiny talk today, apparently. So within the kingdom Animalia, you then have phylums. And then you have classes and orders and families and genuses and species, like I mentioned before. And today, we begin with the phylum Porifera. A little bit of etymology about that. Porifera comes from the Latin porus for poor and fera to bear, hence a poor bearing animal or an animal with pores. For most, sponges conjure up thoughts of a certain individual who lives in a pineapple under the sea, cleaning products, loofahs, or something they've seen in a beach gift shop. Maybe cake if you're hungry enough. But sponges are so much more fascinating than that. Their cells are clumped together and not organized in a tissue, something we'll get into more in a moment. But this means that some species, such as freshwater sponge, Ephidadia fluviatilis, can be pushed through a cheesecloth or a sieve, and the individual cells will find each other, come back together again, and make a new sponge, like, like a reunion Backstreet Boys tour or the Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. Most filter feed, though some are carnivorous. They don't need a brain, a stomach, a heart, or any other organ for that matter, and nothing to ask the Wizard of Oz for. They can reproduce both sexually and asexually. There are 10,000 species distributed nearly pole to pole in both marine and freshwater environments. Some have glass skeletons. Some have skeletons made of tums. They don't move as adults, but that doesn't stop them from finding ways to get around anyway and they've been around for 600 million years. 600 million. What they lack in complexity and backbone is made up for tenfold in diversity of shape, color, and in success as an organism that has managed to survive major changes to Earth's environment, mass explosions both literally and in the form of diversity of life, mass extinctions, mass warmings and coolings, and all this time, they've just been kicking it, unaware, unfazed, persistent. Some individuals have even borne witness to some of these changes in their own lifetime. Antarctic glass sponges take the title of the oldest living animal with an estimated lifespan of 15,000 years. There are sponges underneath Antarctic seas that were there before humans first crossed the Bering Strait into the Americas, before the end of the last ice age before we had even domesticated pigs. 
In today's episode, we're going to cover sponge anatomy, reproduction, diet, and classification. But first, here are eight basic things that make a sponge a sponge. And no, none of them has to do with pineapple. Number one, sponge bodies aren't really all that symmetrical, just blobby or vase-shaped or crusty. Number two, they are multicellular, but don't really have any tissues and definitely no organs. Number three, sponges as adults are sessile, which means that they don't move. Number four, no nervous system, therefore no anxiety, no depression, none of that stuff. Number five, they live underwater. There's no such thing as a land sponge. The cleaning ones are usually artificial. Number six, they filter feed, mostly. Number seven, they reproduce both sexually and asexually. Number eight, no body cavity. Granted, there is a lot of cavities, and a very large one that's relatively in the center, but that's not a body cavity, it's just an open cavity. I'll explain. But let's start with the classification. Under periphera, there are three main classes. The Xactinellida, which are glass sponges, the Desmospongia, which make up about 90% of all sponges, and the Calcaria, which are calcareous sponges. Those classes are made up by seven orders, then even more families, more genuses, and then the nearly 10,000 species, nearly twice the amount of mammal species and close to the same amount of birds. And you know how many birds there are? Like, tons. You could spend your whole life as an avid bird watcher wanting to check off every bird on a list and you could probably never do that. I mean, you'd have to be really wealthy and have really good eyes and all kinds of stuff. They range from tidal zones to depths of over five miles around the world. Five miles, can you imagine being five miles underwater? Especially a creature like this that can't move, that has no real skeleton. We'll talk about that. Sponges are tricky, but clever little things. We like to think of them as simple and they are, like literally they belong in the category of simple animals because they only have one layer of cells to their body. The rest is just, you know, clumpy stuff, which we'll talk about that, but it's not, there's not a whole lot going on there, but, but there's a reason that their body plan has persisted. It works. Sponges, like all life, have cells. The tricky bit is that unlike many organisms that have specific cells for specific jobs, like lung cells, blood cells, brain cells, etc., sponges have tons of unspecialized cells that can transform into other types and move around the body to do different jobs, sort of like a bunch of temps in college. The body is made up of masses of these cells in a gelatinous-y jello matrix called the mesoheal, which basically translates to middle matter. Meso-middle, heal, matter. Sponges can be classified into three major body types, askinoid, sicanoid, and leuconoid. And that is in order of increasing internal surface area. Here's why that's important. Much like a traditional measure of adulthood in humans, adult sponges put down roots and they stay there. They are what are known as sessile. I've said that a couple times. They don't move unless they found themselves attached to something like a hermit crab. So how do they eat? There's no Grubhub at the bottom of the sea, yet that's also kind of exactly how they do it. If the Grubhub driver was the ocean and the food was like whatever is floating around in their body, which maybe not all metaphors 
work. They just filter food out of the water, or, or sometimes it's all based on an odd symbiotic relationship with tiny organisms on its body. Anyway, they take water into their central cavity, which is called a spongicool. S-P-O-N-G-O-C-O-E-L. At the bottom of their body. They take it in through their pores, which are all over. They're called ostia, which comes from the Latin for door or opening. And it flows upward out of the body like a chimney through a part called the osculum. The water is moved through the body, powered. It doesn't just flow into the bottom and out the top. That wouldn't make a whole lot of sense. The sponge is actually actively moving the water using flagellated cells called choanocytes or collar cells which engulf particles from the water, break them down, and then little transport cells called amoebocytes take those nutrients from the collar cells to other body cells. Now, the less internal passageways a sponge has means less internal surface area, which means less space for cells to attach, meaning less cells for filter feeding, and less resistance for water to pass through so it moves more quickly, meaning the cells that are there have trouble catching stuff. This means that the ascanoid body structure is super limiting, meaning those sponges tend to be smaller. The more internal passageways a sponge has means more surface area, more cells for filter feeding, more resistance to water flow, therefore slowing the speed of the passage of the water, making leuconoid the most efficient and effective body structure that a sponge can have. That structure looks more akin to like a brain, but full of weird channels and tunnels and squiggly cells. While the sicanoid looks more like a flower vase, and the leuconoid tend to be kind of crusty or small with little protrusions that you typically expect. Now, a bit ago I did mention that some are carnivorous, and that is an exception. Sponges of the family Clatterhizidae are especially unusual in that they feed by capturing and digesting whole animals. That's right, these sponges are carnivores, meat-eating sponges. That's crazy. They capture small crustaceans with these parts called spicules that act like Velcro, and they come into contact with the exoskeleton of a crustacean. Cells then migrate around that prey and start to digest the crustacean outside of their body and then slurp up all the nutritious goodness. So more about the structure. Sponges don't have the typical skeleton. Their body is supported by calcium carbonate, which actually is an anacid, it's what tums are, or glass-like silica projections called spicules, and, and protein fibers called spongin. Most of what you see are these parts, they're not cells. So how does a sponge make more sponge? Well, one way is sexually, of course, and, and other ways, but first, they release sperm and eggs into the water, sometimes so much that it, that it almost looks like they're smoking looks like a hydrothermal vent. It looks like a chimney, but it's a cloud of eggs and sperm being released into the water where they fertilize each other. And that fertilized little clump becomes a free little, little swimming sponge baby. Little, like, like, like a little plankton, like a little swimming sponge baby until it settles on a place to set anchor for the remainder of its days. Sponges that reproduce asexually produce butts or more often gimules. Which if you don't know what a gimule is, it's, it's amazing. It's like a little survival packet. It's like, it's kind of like a, uh, the pod that Kal-El, Superman, was put into, except 
if it was multiple with different variations of powers. It's packets of several cells of various types inside a protective covering. Freshwaters are known to do this. Spongilidae sponges use gimules and, and they release those before winter. And then in the spring, once everything is thawed out, they can begin to develop. So as I mentioned before, we don't really think of sponges all that much aside from cartoons and cleaning, right? But the human use has been around for thousands of years. The weird part is, is that somebody at some point decided, hey, see this thing in the water? I bet if I beat it until it's tenderized and extra squishy and super absorbent, I can use this to clean my body. Like, kind of weirdo does that. But nevertheless, it persisted, and we still use them to this day. But that's not all. That's not their only use. Sponges have even been used to develop anti-cancer drugs, like aribulin mesylate, which has the brand name of Halaven. Glass sponges are even being looked at to design more efficient fiber optic cables. These sponges that are in deep, dark places, cold places, being looked at to, to potentially enhance our internet. And of course, yeah, cleaning. But here's the real thing about periphery that I find fascinating. While they might be simple, they're also so complex. When you really stop to take a moment to look at them, to, to understand how they work, to look at their internal structure, and you realize that they have persisted for millions of years, the first real complex multicellular animals existing all this time and, and not really seeing any kind of need to change. It means that they figured out a solution to the problems that they were having long ago and that solution persisted. I, I find something really fascinating about that and about how we who, who think we're so complex are able to look at something that we think is so simple and learn from it because it has solved a problem. It manages in all environments from pole to pole. It manages under extreme ocean pressure. It manages in tidal zones. It manages in nutrient dense and nutrient poor waters. It has symbiotic relationships with tiny, tiny organisms. Instead of eating them or engulfing them, it, it works together with them. This is a body structure. Well, while consciously is not making these decisions, that actually might be the most fascinating part, is that nature itself found the solution. Thank you for listening to the first installment of Phylum. Next time on Phylum, we will be diving into, no pun intended, Nidaria. And if you know what that is, it's jellyfish. And also we're going to be talking about box jellies and comb jellies and all the jellies. It's going to be a very jelly filled <laughs> episode. Now, before you go, one thing I want you to do is check out the episode notes because in the episode notes, it has a link to our website where we have put up free educational resources for you, free visuals, free downloadable worksheets and keys for you educators out there or people who just want to color stuff in and learn about sponges. We're even putting up posters with our uh, with our sponge designs. There's one that just goes through the basic body forms, one that takes a more in-depth look at the anatomy. But either way, the point is, is those resources are free. And every episode that like this that we do, 
we will do the same thing. We will also put up a write-up on our website. So if you are in high school, middle school, college, and you wanna use this as a supplementary resource, if you wanna use this to help you study in your zoology class, you have our stuff. And we will continue to do that, putting it out there for free. And in our future mini series like ornithology, mammalogy, general ecology, we're gonna be doing the exact same stuff. Now, if you do want to support us, you can do that at patreon.com slash the wildlife. That is a monthly contribution. You become a member and we send you all kinds of cool stuff and you become our best friend. If you only want to make a one-time donation, that's great too. You can do that at paypal.me slash the wildlife. But if you do end up joining the esteemed rank of our members, oh my gosh, I, I, like, I can't even tell you how much it means to us. In the meantime, please remember to rate and subscribe to our show. The ratings help us to move up in the ranks, makes us more visible, helps more people access these free educational materials, and everybody wins, right? Thank you to Andrea Lloyd, Chris Trankel, Angela Seibert, Bridget Fitzgerald, Christina Boker, Maria Hancox, Matt Capel, Megan Gariani, Mike Henry, Vikram Baligi, Whitney Vandiver, Zach Stednick, April Belinsky Kimiak, Kim Drelay, Kara Bergman, Tara Peterson, and Charlie Rodriguez. We could not do this stuff without you. We would not be able to give the time and the energy and the effort and, and the research uh, into, into putting these things together. You make this happen. You are the show. So thank you. I'm Devin Boker, and this is Wildlife. <laughs>